0: Well, those who have heard me preach a couple of times now know that I kind of stick to a formula. I should, you know, get out of it. But I always start most weeks with an in-depth sort of cultural deep dive and pull out the meaning of the text. I usually give you a quick sort of TikTok length history lesson in the ancient biblical times in whatever part of the biblical world we find ourselves in that week. But the thing about today's reading from James is that while it was written about 2,000 years ago, it almost sounds like a story that we'd hear today. We might hear it told at a ministry meeting, or a small group, or maybe after the service at morning tea. We might hear it talked about that church up the road, or even worse, our own fellowship. Can you imagine it? Let's imagine it together. It's church morning tea today. You've just got your lovely barista-made coffee from Nanoka. All proceeds going to our mission partners, of course, the little plug there. And someone comes and says to you, oh no, did you hear what happened at the Easter service earlier this year? It just got back to me through a friend of a friend who was having a rough time. A man came to our church wearing a nice button-up shirt and some finely pressed chinos. He was well-groomed. He had a nice-looking watch. He came with his wife, and she too was well-presented. Someone recognised him as that successful guy from the paper or TV. And at the same service, another visitor arrived. He was alone, and he had a bit of a smell to him, Grooming might have been an issue because of a mental health issue or maybe he was just sleeping rough. His clothes were torn and stained. His shoes were worn. Well, someone walked up and welcomed the successful man and his wife. They gave them a coffee card. They welcomed them into the church. And someone else saw the slightly dirtier man. They wanted him to feel welcome too, but they didn't want his smell getting into our red fabric chairs or offending other worshippers here on Easter, the most important of days. So they grabbed him a plastic chair from out the back and they just seated him in the foyer with the door propped open. The issue is that even if we haven't heard this exact story, we've often heard a story kind of like it, told of our own church or another, that makes us cringe a little bit about how the church didn't quite live up to its mission or the teachings of Christ. In fact, at the moment, I'm noticing that there are a myriad of exposing documentaries out about Christian groups or churches that fall short. Such documentaries tell of churches or individuals who have become won over by money or fame or power. And I must admit that I've watched a few of them, half mortified and half intrigued. I think the really easy response when we watch documentaries like that or when we hear these stories is to say, well, obviously they weren't real Christians. They obviously didn't have a real relationship with Christ if they failed so badly. And I think we do that partly, or I do that partly, because it makes us feel safe that we could never fail that badly we could never fall into temptations or traps like that because we have real faith and they mustn't however I don't think that's true I think these churches and these leaderships are full of people who have come to know the saving grace of Christ and they've fallen short we fall short And I think that's what today's passage in James is all about. If the wisdom of last week, of chapter one, when Carolyn came and shared with us, is about making sure that faith is not just religion, but actually affects the way we live, then today's passage challenges both those hearers of 2,000 years ago, but also us today to make the connection between our faith and our lives. Connecting faith and the way that one lives and one acts. It asks us the question, how can you hold faith in Christ and behave in a way which discriminates against other people? And James's answer seems to be, well, quite easily. It happens all the time. And I think we can say to some degree, we've done it. We've professed a faith and fallen short or not lived in the way that Jesus calls. Because that's the reality of Christian people, of we, of us. We can make choices that sit contradictory to the very faith we profess and live. And this is why we need this kind of wisdom instruction that we find in the book of James. It's to bring the obvious connections to the surface, because many, for many, they're not obvious, or we're living in a bit of a disconnect. We need a prompting and a reminder. The solution is not to set up a complex array of rules for life as a kind of checklist for us to get through so that we can show it at the pearly gates of heaven. But it's to learn to engage in the process of making connections So, that our behaviours become an outcome of our faith. And it's neither independent nor something that we just tag on as good or required. Well, as Carolyn said to us last week, James can sometimes be disliked or treated as a bit of a moralistic nag. Some say he lacks the theology of Paul. But I agree with Carolyn that I think James is a little bit misunderstood. He is simply building on the faith and theology that Paul discussed and giving us wisdom for this Christian life. And sometimes it's really uncomfortable wisdom. And I say all this because I want us all to look inward today. Instead of considering how the people next to us or others, how this applies to them, I want us all to invite the Spirit to help us to survey ourselves, to look to the places that we are like those churches and followers that James was first writing to. Now, this part of chapter two is concerned with discrimination and how these churches welcome people. Isn't it interesting? 2,000 years ago, they were caring and thinking about welcome and hospitality just as we are today. James does not pull this out of nowhere. This is the care, the hospitality and the welcome that God has communicated throughout scripture. But James puts it pretty bluntly. We know from the very first times of the Old Testament we are called to care for the widow, the orphan, the refugee. So what James very carefully does is he tells these churches a story He gives them an example, the one that I just gave of here in the red chairs. He gives it to them in their context about these two types of men who come to a gathering. And once he's moved on from that, he then proceeds to ask them a series of questions about the nature of the welcome and partiality that they've shown, which as faithful followers and students of the scriptures, they should know the answer to. Well, first we have in verse 5, he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promises those who love him? This directly relates to the Gospels. You've got it in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 3 and uh, verse 5. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Luke also has this in his gospel. In chapter 6, verse 20, it says, Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Then James shifts with some logic in verse 6 and 7. He says, But you've dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Noting here that the receivers of James's letter themselves are not wealthy or powerful, these churches would have been very, very poor. You didn't make powerful friends and gain social capital by being a Christian in the first century. It, was, it really put you on the outer. In fact, as this letter says, those who are in power in their society are actually the ones who are keeping them down, who are keeping them on the fringe. They're trying to squeeze out this new religion. They're dragging them through court. They're dragging the name of Jesus as just this criminal who was crucified Yet when they see someone of that social standing come into their fellowship with affluence, they are so quick to appeal to them and to dishonour the poor. And when they do that, they're actually dishonouring themselves. In verse 8 and 12, we get this long discourse about following the law or breaking the law. And for lots of us, we can then get our backs up when we read stuff like this. And this is what can be really confronting about James. We go, the law, that sounds like Old Testament stuff. We're not under the law anymore. But James is careful to redefine what the law is and what he means by it. And he points them back to the words of Jesus, to his greatest commandment. He says, what we're following is this thing called the royal law, meaning the law of King Jesus. And so he points back to the teachings of Jesus, to this commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Love God above all else. And the second is like it. Note that he doesn't say the second commandment that I'm about to give you is second place to the first. No, it's like it. And they are intrinsically linked. You can't have one without the other. In fact, in the two other Gospels, Luke and Mark, what I'm reading here is from Matthew, Luke and Mark, it's just one long commandment that they make it. And it says, and the second commandment that we find quoted directly in James verse 8 is you, (coughs) pardon me, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And James is saying, when you show favouritism, what you're actually doing is positioning one neighbour above the other. And therefore, you're not actually putting everybody on this equal field and loving your neighbour as yourself. Doing this is breaking the commandment. It's breaking the royal law. Now, let's notice what James isn't saying. He isn't saying that because they broke this commandment, they are no longer followers or that they no longer have a relationship with Jesus. No. James knows the mercy, the sacrifice and the love of Christ is bigger than that. He is just saying that it is possible to have received the life changing gift of Christ, yet be hung up with the things of this world. So this is where text today and James asks us some questions of ourselves. Now if you're a person who gets easily distracted you might want to close your eyes as I pose these questions to you. When you look at the people that you surround yourself with, your friends, your neighbours, your Bible study, are you positioning yourself with people who can advance your own social standing your own wealth and your own power. If you're in high school, a better way to ask it might be, if you're at school, who are you inviting to hang out with you at lunch or take the table next to you in class? What biases do we have about those who can and cannot join in us in friendship, in worship, or be welcomed into our homes? Can everybody come and share a meal at your table? Could just anyone walk through the front doors of our church on a Sunday and be welcome without judgment? And I don't mean just outward judgment. I mean that little inner voice in our heads. If someone doesn't look or sound or maybe smell like the rest of us and they walked in, What would be your internal response? When I first read this passage this week, here's the question I asked myself that really helped me to frame this. I asked myself, is there an ideal type of person that I want to worship at our church? And the answer to that type of question tells us a lot about our tendency towards partiality and favouritism. When I answered that question really honestly and really quickly... I got a very clear picture of a type of person in my mind. They were very neat looking, they were young, they were educated and they were a faithful servant. And that right there, that challenged me. That's not a bad picture of a follower of Jesus but the fact that that was what so quickly jumped into my mind. The words of James challenged me because they showed me my own partiality and my own sense of favouritism the person who I thought was in. I had a certain age, a certain gender, a certain class in my mind. My bias was exposed to me because it turns out I wanted somebody just like me or maybe who I aspired to be. (laughs) What I think this reading from James does a really good job at is not to just point that finger of accusation and make us go home feeling guilty, but it talks to us about inevitably how we practise partiality, whether we like it or not. And it lifts up a mirror for ourselves, that in every place, in every church, people are often treated differently because of their outward appearance. It is part of how our society is set up to work and we in our churches become little mirrors of this. But as Christ's church, we are called to be different. The final point that I'd like to make from today's reading is this. If partiality and favouritism come from a place of judgement, then what are we to do? Well, I think the very final words of today's reading tell us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, what is mercy? A quick little Google definition says that mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it is within one's power to punish or to harm. We know that we live in a society with many power dynamics at play. It's just how it's been set up. Most of us hold some power over others. Maybe unless you're like under five and you're the the youngest sibling, you maybe don't have much power. But everyone else has power over someone pretty much. It might be at work. It could be personal. It could be a knowledge-based power that you know more than someone. It could be a relational power. And we all hold power in our minds to pass judgment. We've been shown the ultimate mercy by Jesus on the cross. We've been shown compassion. We have been shown forgiveness. And through that, we have been given new life. So that we too can enact that type of mercy towards others in the world. Being merciful is not necessarily referring just to holding back punishment, judgment, harm or anger, but rather it's acting kindly and loving others through one's actions towards them. At its very core, God's mercy is about God's love for us, a love so deep and so radical that it is constantly transforming us. I say transforming, not transformed, because the work is not done. If it was, I would never have to preach again. The Holy Spirit, through God's loving mercy, is transforming us each and every day. So this week, I want you to honestly name the people or the types of people that you have a bias towards or those who maybe you show favour to with your time, with your energy and with your love. Because we all have them. It's part of being human. But then I invite you to reread this passage in James and to hold James up like a mirror, to join the Holy Spirit in that transforming work, to change you, to transform you into a person of mercy instead of a person of judgment. Well, let's pray together. God, we thank you that in so many ways we are just ready for your judgment, but that's not what you give us. You give us mercy. You have given us newness. Transform us into people of mercy. Transform us into people who are radically inclusive, who want to transform others' lives and have ours transformed in the process. Help us to invite your Holy Spirit to move us and to transform us anew this week. Amen.